And I'm curious what level attorneys get involved in this? Are, are we talking about an Indiana Jones level where you're off on an expedition and crawling into caves and grabbing items that someone's searching for? Or are you mostly on the back end of this thing? I wish it were that exciting, Greg. Um, <laughs> I would say we're yeah. more on the, the back end of it. Um, when uh, people come to us learning, you know, they've now at this point have learned that something is missing is, you know, maybe in a collection or at a museum or at a gallery and they have evidence that it was stolen and, and they're coming to us at usually at that point when there's like some some evidence that something was stolen. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court, and I have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, according to Georgetown Law Library, art law can be defined as the body of law involving numerous disciplines that protects, regulates, and facilitates the creation, use, and marketing of art. Those involved in the practice of art law look to a variety of disciplines, such as intellectual property, contract, constitutional law, tort law, tax law, as well as commercial and international law to protect the interests of their clients. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to spotlight art law. We will discuss the emerging trend of colonial art restitution, stolen and misappropriated art, and how AI has impacted art and copyright law. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by two great guests. First, we have attorney Gabrielle C. Wilson from the law firm K. Spiegler. Gabrielle specializes in art, cultural property, and intellectual property law, as well as commercial transactions. She's experienced in both state and federal courts. Gabrielle has been involved in multi-million dollar commercial disputes involving art, intellectual property, and insurance-related issues. She has also represented claimants seeking restitution of stolen art and antiquities. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. And next, we have attorney Yael M. Weitz. She is also from Case Spiegler. She advises clients in a wide range of domestic and cross-border art and cultural property matters. She has represented claimants seeking restitution of art misappropriated during the Holocaust and claimants seeking the recovery of looted or stolen cultural patrimony. She has represented collectors and galleries in various art transactions as well. Welcome to the show, Yael. Thanks for having me. Well, let's toss this first to Gabrielle. How did you first become interested in art law? Well, for my entire life, I've always been interested in the arts. I, I went to uh, grade school and high school that was really focused on the arts. And I took a lot of painting classes and sculpture classes over the years, you know, to this day. And I danced uh, professionally as a child and up and through college. And then uh, even during law school, I was part of a dance company. So the arts have really been in my entire life. And when I went to law school, I really was interested in pursuing something where I could protect the rights of artists. Um, so I was really interested in copyright and IP. I was able to take an art law clinic in college and I got an opportunity to work for the general counsel at Alvin Ailey Dance Foundation. And really during law school, I was discovering this thing called art law. And I, you know, it's like, oh, wow, like I can actually meld my interests with 
my legal career. And when I started at my first firm, I started out doing general um, commercial litigation and there was an art law group. And so I started working more with them and, you know, the rest is history. Excellent. Well, Yael, let's ask the same question to you. And in your introduction, I referred to stolen cultural patrimony. Perhaps you can explain that. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I became interested in art law when I was a, a student in law school, where I enrolled in a seminar that focused on Holocaust restitution. And for me, I felt a personal um, connection with the work in the fields, you know, because of my family history having Holocaust survivors. And this course really inspired me to pursue art restitution as a career and art law more broadly. And as part of that, we, we also deal with cultural patrimony repatriation cases. And that is dealing more with antiquities and other cultural property that has been taken from a country and ends up somewhere else, usually on the market. And there's an old joke asking why the pyramids aren't in the British Museum. <laughs> the joke is because they're too big. But um, how does that work? I mean, one of the looming questions I've always had about art law and repatriation is the statute of limitations. I mean, isn't there, we're talking about repatriating art from the Holocaust that was, you know, 80 years ago. In the Holocaust context in particular, there's a, a special law that was um, enacted by Congress called the HERE Act in 2016. And that actually extended the statute of limitations for artworks that were lost to their owners as a result of Nazi persecution. And so there is a law that kind of extends that, although there's other doctrines that can come into play that, you know, can still make timeliness an issue in these cases. But there is a, a law, at least with respect to Nazi looted art. And with the HERE Act, whereas, you know, some states have laws where the statute of limitations starts to run from the time of the theft, the HERE Act has the discovery rule. So it's, you know, after you have actual knowledge of where the work is and that you have a possessory interest in that work. So, you know, it really makes it available. So we're not talking about, you know, when these thefts occurred, which was a long time ago, but, you know, when these families are later learning about that they have claims. And how does a family go about learning this? I mean, it, you have a piece of artwork that is, you know, perhaps 100 years old. How does a family learn that they may have a relative that at one time owned it, that it was stolen, and now where it is? Can you describe that whole process? I think the process is different, you know, depending on, you know, a family's resources or, you know, just what has been passed down within the family in terms of information as to the history. And there are a lot of uh, provenance researchers. There are actually people who are investigating and researching what happened to works that were lost during World War II. And sometimes they're in a position where they can contact families and say, you know, we've been doing some research and we've learned that, okay, this particular work has a history and, and we can tie it back to being owned by your family and it was looted. So then that family then retains those uh, workers and, and then uh, goes about filing an action or suing to get it back. How does that process work? And you're talking about 
international situations where art is located in one country and the potential owners are in another? Yes, that's right. So oftentimes these cases involve international issues and and, um, working with people from various countries. And uh, the provenance research itself often, you know, will involve going to archives in different countries across the globe, really. So that that's very often the case. Yeah. In our work, we deal with a lot of foreign attorneys who are helping us with certain <laughs> issues. Oftentimes when we get involved is because the the work, either the plaintiffs are here in the New York or in, in the area, or the work is here. And what ultimately happens with these works? So they get repatriated to the family or do they ultimately get sold again to someone else to, for the family to make money? It really varies. There can be different outcomes to these cases. Um, sometimes the work is, you know, restituted to the family. Sometimes it can lead to an agreement between the parties where it may stay with the museum and they reach another, you know, some sort of agreement or not necessarily a museum, but if that's the case and, and have, you know, the history of the painting explained, um, you know, so there's, there's really a wide range of outcomes to these kind of cases. And what range of antiquities do we t- are we talking about? Is it just mainly artworks, uh, paintings, or does it extend to things that are archaeological digs and so forth? Well, if we're talking now about antiquities separate from works that were lost during World War II, yeah, these are coming from illegal digs most of the time. And they've passed through... At this point, sometimes many hands or, you know, maybe it's something that was dug up yesterday that is now on the market. It really depends. So there's a black market for these things? 100%. Absolutely. And is that where the, most of these discoveries come from in the provenance researchers? Do they? Uh, how do you find the black market for these uh, antiquities and for the artwork that gets looted? Well, I mean, there are databases where people for many of the years, like the FBI stolen art database, where people have reported things that have been stolen. I mean, these are things that are known. So for sometimes for works that were taken during World War II, you know, those might be on a list. But oftentimes antiquities and things of that nature may not be on those lists because they were illegally excavated and the timing or the who, what, and when of when the things were stolen is unknown in which case those things aren't reported. Right. Well, walking around a museum would lead one to think that there's a lot of uh, artwork and antiquities that are perhaps illegally gotten or not necessarily should belong in a museum. What are your thoughts about that? We certainly hear about museums in the news with antiquities in their collections that have raised questions or even claims. So, that is an issue. Um, I think in terms of the legal perspective of it, you know, I think that um, it can still be challenging for governments to reclaim those um, pieces because of um, the circumstances that Gabrielle was discussing where, um, you know, these, these pieces were dug up in the middle of the night and taken away. But there, you know, there have been steps forward in that and it seems like we're moving in that direction. Right. Well, ladies, it's time for us to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. 
Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by attorneys Gabrielle C. Wilson and Yael M. Weitz from K. Spiegler. We've been talking about art law. And I'm curious what level attorneys get involved in this. Are, are we talking about an Indiana Jones level where you're off on an expedition and crawling into caves and grabbing uh, items that someone's searching for? Or are you mostly on the back end of this thing? I wish it were that exciting, Greg. Um, I would say we're yeah. more on the, the back end of it. Um, when uh, people come to us learning, you know, they've now at this point have learned that something is missing is, you know, maybe in a collection or at a museum or at a gallery and they have evidence that it was stolen and, and they're coming to us at usually at that point when there's like some some evidence that something was stolen. And how are those arrangements made? I mean, I don't mean to get into the details of it, but do you handle these things on contingency on an hourly basis? What's the what's the relationship like? Well, definitely with the cultural property, it's usually not in a contingency basis because they want the objects back. You know, they want to repatriate back to their countries of origin and that's important to them. They're not interested in selling the object. So, you know, usually it's fee-based arrangement. With respect to some of our other cases where, you know, families may not have the funds to be able to pay for lawyers to engage in protracted litigation for years and years to try to recover some of these artworks, in some instances, we may have contingency arrangements. And that's definitely part of our um, fee arrangement. Well, artificial intelligence has now become quite controversial in the art world. Does AI have any influence in your area of practice? Oh, it, it definitely does. We're all really trying to play catch up and um, try to understand how these programs work so we can better help our clients. Really, it's come up in the, the copyright area where these programs that are able to generate images based on, you know, putting in natural language text, artists whose Images have been trained on this data are concerned about, you know, their rights and, you know, how they they may be able to um, monetize that. And also there's a concern that the outputs that come out of these AI programs, whether or not they're copyrightable, it seems like the copyright office has said, no, they're not. Um, so there's all these issues that we're kind of dealing with that are of first impression 
in trying to understand like what rights people have with respect to these programs and really like all of the different uses that it's that the art market has been using it in we're still trying to understand legal implications right and how does ai affect uh the older art that we've come to know and love some of the rembrandts and the picassos and the stuff that's no longer protected by copyright Hmm, that's an interesting question. I know AI has been used in terms of authenticating works, and, and that's where I, I've seen it used the most in terms of dealing with, you know, works where the uh, authors or creators have died. Yeah, if, um, I could just add to that. It's really interesting, actually, in terms of authentication, because the AI platforms or technology doesn't always agree, right? Depending on which one is used. Um, so we've seen cases where, you know, you know, one will say, oh, it's definitely by this old master. And the other one will examine the painting and, and reach an completely opposite conclusions. So I think the art market is still kind of grappling with how much to rely on this technology as far as authentication goes. But I, you know, I, we're just starting out. So it's possible that it'll end up being, you know, a very useful tool. But I don't, you know, at this point, I don't think we're there in terms of just putting in an image and waiting for it to, you know, analyze it without a human at the end of it saying, well, is that right and, and why? And I think with respect to copyright, we're not really worried about the AI. Or, I mean, no one's really worried about the AI training on, on data that's outside of copyright. That doesn't seem to be an issue. Right. seems to be just for the replication of artwork and perhaps the written words, such as like plagiarism. Does plagiarism in a way enter into your work in the sense that uh, some of the masters will have students or people in their uh, salon that have done work that imitates theirs. How do you, how do you ultimately tell the difference between a master's work and a student's work? As a lawyer, you know, we would rely on the expertise of art experts with the background and learning on a particular artist. And, you know, they might end up concluding that it's school of or from the studio of a particular artist. And it could be an authentic work as being, you know, the school of that artist as opposed to the master artist himself. And that would be, that would be a fine outcome as well. It just kind of depends on the particular circumstances. Well, and it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, 
accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with attorneys Gabrielle C. Wilson and Yael M. Weitz from attorneys K. Spiegler. So what's it like to be this close to these historic pieces of art and be part of this litigation process? I'm assuming at some point in time, you actually get to see the artwork that you're working on that really has not been in the public view very, very much. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's uh, one of the things I love most about, you know, working in this field is is actually getting to see and experience the art. And yeah, it's, definitely it's a perk. Terrific. Yes. <laughs> so where do you credit your uh, your love of art from, uh, Yael? Is it is it your teachers in, in your youth or is it just uh, exposure to it over time? I would say it's just exposure to it over time. I've always enjoyed art and I, it's been such a pleasure, you know, learning about art through my work, getting to just see it, you know? Right. So what if a, an attorney that's listening to us today decides, I, you know, I love art. I've always enjoyed it. And I'd like to get into this. What steps should they take in order to get into your industry? What's really interesting, Craig, is though, I feel like when both Yael and I were, were starting it wasn't a field like it is now. I mean, I think there are a lot of law schools that actually teach this now that offer classes in art law. And I know because some of our colleagues teach them. And so that is really a great place to start to see if you're interested is, you know, taking a class in this um, field and see. But I always tell people that, you know, being in art law, like you're almost a generalist. You really have your hands in so many areas of the law, they just happen to relate to art. Right. Can you give us an example of one of the cases that you've worked on that's not a current one that you can talk about? Sure. We have a, a restitution-related uh, matter that we worked on in the past and still are working with now. We represent the heirs of an art dealer, um, Jacques Houtsticker, whose artworks were looted by the Nazis and the family was able to have um, hundreds of works repatriated by the Dutch government years ago. And because the dealer had so many artworks in his collection, artworks are still being discovered today as belonging to the family and um, we're able to assist them in um, having those works returned. So it's, it's been very gratifying. What happens to the people on the other side of the litigation, the ones that have received the looted artwork, perhaps unknowingly, it's just been hanging on the wall in the family home for years, or are the situations like that? Do they know that the artwork has been stolen and they're keeping it? Or is it what happens on the opposite side of the case? I find that in most instances, you are dealing with good faith purchasers. They they might not know the circumstances. And often since there's so much time that has passed between the actual theft and them being in possession of it, you know, it might have changed hands like five or six or seven times. But once they they have that knowledge, I find that some people in some instances, 
you know, they don't feel good about the fact that they're in possession of stolen a stolen object, a stolen antiquity or stolen work. And, they, you know, they are willing to come to the table and say, you know, even though I'm not a wrongdoer, at some point a wrong was committed. And, you know, I don't want to be involved in perpetuating that wrong. And then and then you have others who say, you know, I, I purchased this rightfully and, you know, I'm just going to consider that and and maybe not think about the moral implications. Well, We've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. Uh, Gabrielle, let's turn to you first. I'd love to, I guess, mention that, you know, a lot of our work is also like the commercial side of our work, dealing with the whole like art market ecosystem is really fun. You know, doing this work as we've been doing it, it's just marvelous to kind of look at the whole ecosystem and like, all the ways that we've been able to be involved, you know, whether it's working with artists' estates in terms of them trying to um, retain art advisories or working on purchase and sale agreements for works that are going to be sold at auction, you know, working with artists in terms of protecting their moral rights and their copyrights. Really, we're just in a position to kind of facilitate these transactions in this like entire fine art market ecosystem and deal with the disputes that come about, whether it's, you know, title disputes or authenticity or, you know, some of the other things that I mentioned. It's just been a lot of fun. Great. And Yael, your thoughts? I echo Gabrielle's comments. I I think that um, working on the whole range of of matters and transactions and assisting clients with, with a loan and then seeing the exhibition, you know, it's, it's really exciting and um, it's really a pleasure kind of having that whole range um, as part of our practice. Great. And if our listeners would like to reach out to you, find out more about Art Law, how can they do that? Well, they can check out our, our firm's website, casebeagler.com, and our bios are there and our contact information. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks, Craig. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Well, here are a few of my thoughts about today's topic. It seems odd that you can reach back in time and and, uh, grab old artworks that maybe someone else has bought, they think, legitimately. But as as our guests pointed out during this podcast, most people don't really want to have stolen art. So it's good that this area of law exists. It's very interesting and uh, challenge you to get involved with it if it's something that turns you on. Well, that's about what I think on today's topic. Let me know what you think. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.